tonight from Exodus chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. Exodus 6, verses 1 through 13. Let's stand together to hear the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand he will let them go, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people. And I will be your God. And then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord, saying, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised lips." And then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. This is the very word of God. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We pray it would strike us, it would influence us, it would change our lives. Father, give us faith. Give us an increase in faith. We pray we would not be as these leaders among the children of Israel, but those who know it immediately that you are God and you will save your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. God revealed himself to Moses by his name Yahweh. And that becomes the first manifestation of God to his people by his name. Now, the name Yahweh is taken up in Genesis chapter 2 and verse 4. The term Elohim is used until you get to Genesis 2 and verse 4. And it's one reason why some consider that to be a separation of the first chapter from the second chapter in terms of the order of revelation. I don't think there was much of a separation uh, in terms of revelation between Genesis chapter 1 or Genesis chapter 2. But we do know that God revealed himself to Abraham as El Shaddai, and here he reveals himself to Moses as, as Yahweh God. And we'll get to the personal name for God in a little bit, but I believe what's happening here is that God is testing his people. That's the overarching message that we get from Exodus chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and 12. God is testing his people at the same time that he's testing Pharaoh. And we are tested as well, so I think this is a helpful passage for us. God tests our faith, and he does that over and over again. 
And perhaps the question occurs to us, as it did for Moses and Aaron and the leaders of Israel, will God really redeem his people? Is God really able to save his people? Will he follow through on his promise? Oftentimes things get worse before they get better. This is another means by which God tests us. He tests our faith. He stacks the deck increasingly. We see that with Gideon and others throughout Scripture, where God makes it, it seems, more difficult to believe him. He's certainly upping the ante for Moses and Aaron as well as the heart of this Pharaoh continues to harden against the message and against Moses and Aaron and against the people of Israel and against God as well. So here the deck is increasingly stacked against the people of God and the question is posed against them over and over again. Is God competent to save us? Is God trustworthy uh, for this? Please understand this is a bit of a challenge uh, for Moses as well. So don't get the impression that if you were Moses, you would you know, easily march in there with all kinds of faith and uh, send this message to the Pharaoh. Moses did demand of the Pharaoh that he would free the people of God. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, he said, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. So this is, of course, a big challenge. Moses addressing a powerful monarch on the earth. He had already enslaved a million Israelites, which means that he was a very powerful man. There weren't really that many empires that large at that period of time. I'm trying to think of the size of the Chinese empires. I don't think any of them were as big as Egypt at this point. So arguably this is the largest empire on earth at that time. Uh, he had an army, he had chariots, he had horses. So this, this was most likely the most powerful empire on earth. Moreover, he was also an autocrat. Now, what is an autocrat? We're not really familiar with autocrats today. Perhaps the last one would have been somebody like Idi Amin. An autocrat is somebody who rules with ultimate authority, with no human restraint. This is one thing I've discovered in my study of of history going back into the early kings of Uganda, say in the 1700s, early 1800s before the Westerners made it into Uganda. And uh, they were typically, uh, the Congo as well, ruled by autocrats. Uh, the king of Congo had uh, skulls uh, hung around his throne, skulls of men that he had arbitrarily slaughtered. So these were autocrats. Uh, these are men who could do whatever they wanted to do. There was no balance of powers at all. It was Christians who introduced constitutions and balance of powers into the world. But these men are ultimately powerful. Their decisions are often arbitrary. Uh, the autocrat can be extremely violent as well. They think nothing of uh, slaughtering hundreds if not thousands of perceived enemies or competitors. This is the sort of thing that they did in these uh, pagan governments. So Moses uh, waltzes into the presence of Pharaoh and tells him, God says, let my people go. There was no pleas, there was no polite appeal, no allowance for an opt-out, just a command uh, to the most powerful man on earth, let my people go. So you have to understand, this itself was a challenge for this, uh, our, our, bro our brother Moses. I'm not sure I could even do this. Uh, so at least respect the, the faith challenge that is lying before uh, Moses as he comes into the presence of Pharaoh and demands the release of God's people. Not only was Moses placing his own life in jeopardy, but as we read in the text, chapter 5, that he was putting the lives and futures of a million people plus into jeopardy as well. Now, Pharaoh's response was mocking at Moses. Who is this Yahweh? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice 
to let the people of Israel go. I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. So that was his response to Moses. Uh, as far as he was concerned, there is no God Almighty. Uh, apparently he felt he lived in a polytheistic universe. Uh, there are only gods, many gods, no ultimate God. Uh, gods with whom men like Pharaoh felt they could compete. Powerful kings, powerful democracies often pretend to turn themselves into gods. And so he was feeling rather proud, rather like somebody who can compete with this Yahweh. So his question was, who is the Lord? Who is this Yahweh that you speak of? And that, that was the question. I think that is what uh, is, is the, the context or the pretext in which uh, this message from chapter 6 occurs. Moses was very much resisted by the Pharaoh. You can look at verses uh, 20 through 23, then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And that's, this is where they're receiving something of some pushback from the leaders of Israel. They said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh, the sight of his servants, to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. So here Moses is opposed by the Pharaoh. He's opposed by the people of Israel. Uh, oh, Moses is alone in his campaign to gain the liberty of God's people en masse. So far there is no sign of redemption either. There's no uh, encouragement to the people of God that they're making any political progress with Pharaoh. They won't see that all the way through chapter 12, because the Pharaoh's heart is increasingly hardened in the process. Physical eyes cannot see what is going on. This, of course, is why it's so much, so much of a challenge for us. As we live the Christian life and we face so many challenges before us, are we going to be redeemed? Are we really going to make it? Is God really going to salvage something out of our lives? Is there a heaven that awaits us? Uh, is God going to preserve us and uh, provide for us uh, this salvation, eternal glory, uh, the promises of God. We call them into question from time to time, especially when things are very difficult for us, when physical eyes cannot see the progress. Uh, there's perhaps very little empirical evidence that there's much redemption going on around us. Certainly the missionaries ran into this. Think about how hard it would have been to be so many of the missionaries who would spend anywhere between 7 and 14 years before they had their first convert. And oftentimes the first several converts would have been the Simon the Sorcerers or more like Judas. And so oftentimes the first several uh, converts uh, that they had uh, were false converts. That certainly was the case with my father who baptized two young men and yet they turned out to be the the first uh, apostates in my father's ministry. Very discouraging time for the ministry. So when we you know, set out to set the people of Israel free to bring the gospel message, it can be a very discouraging time for ministers. They may go on for 7, 14, other, uh, 20, 25 years before they see anything significant going on around them. Uh, there's no physical empirical evidence to encourage them that redemption is, is going to be happening, whether it, it be that which is yet to be accomplished uh, here or whether it's that to be accomplished in some other place around the world. Moses is going to have to believe the Word of God, and that's the bottom line here. He's going to have to believe the promises of God, and we're going to get into uh, the answer that God provides Moses and I believe the leaders of Israel as well in this section uh, if, of uh, Gen uh, Exodus chapter 6. So we are faced oftentimes with the same problems. We may not be able to quite see the salvation of God happening. 
we may still be dealing with some very significant areas of our lives that are crying out uh, for God's redemption, for reconciliation, for renewal. But before we talk about how bad things are, before we talk about our anxieties, before we pray, before we read the Word of God, before we do anything else, we must come to Exodus chapter 6. We need to answer this question. Who is this? Who is this talking to us? Who is this we are praying to? Whose word are we reading today? This is the very first question. Before we get into anything else, before we enter into any conversation, about how bad things are, or what we need in prayer, we need to be able to ask, answer this question. Who is this Yahweh? That's the question Pharaoh posed to Moses and Aaron. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Who is this Yahweh that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. And I believe that chapter 6 is an answer to the question posed by Pharaoh. God gives his name. I think I counted six times in this passage. Six times, he repeats it over and over again. I am the Lord. Emphatically, I am the Lord. That's the message that God is sending back to the leaders of Israel, as well as to Moses and Aaron, I believe, to the Pharaoh. So God answers the question, I am Yahweh. Then he says, I am God Almighty. This is how he revealed himself to Abraham as El Shaddai first. There's nobody above me. That's the idea of, of being El Shaddai, God Almighty, the one who is above all else. There's no competition for God. That may also be translated as the God of heaven. But more than this, he says, I am Yahweh. And this is the thing he's emphasizing. I am the Lord of the universe. I am both over all and I am the master. I'm not disconnected from the people over which I am Lord and Master. I'm very much connected to my world. I am Yahweh. And the the name Yahweh implies at least three things. And I think we've gone over this a bit earlier on in chapter 3. But the first thing it conveys to us or implies to us is the Lordship of God. This is the way it's translated in the Septuagint. Every reference to Yahweh is translated in the Septuagint, which, by the way, our Lord Jesus Christ recognized and quoted from the Septuagint, so it's legitimate for us to take in the Septuagint translation. So the first thing that's implied by the word Yahweh is that God is the Lord. God is over all. He is master. He is, he is the one who organizes and manages the entire universe. He is the manager over everything in this universe. God is the Lord. God is the master. Secondly, it is the covenant name for God. And that's why it comes into play in Exodus chapter 3. And by the way, it also comes into play in Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 and onwards, because God presents himself to Adam as the covenant God, as Yahweh. Whether or not Abraham heard the name of God, we don't know. We do know that he reveals himself uh, to, to Moses as 
Yahweh God or the covenant-keeping God of heaven, the one who makes covenant with men as he did with Adam and as he did with Abraham as well. So God is the Lord. He is the covenant-keeping God of heaven. And then thirdly, he is the I Am. So that's how he revealed himself in Exodus chapter 3. He is the eternally existent and ultimately existent one and the source of all existence. He is the God of heaven. So he's, he's coming back to Pharaoh and introducing himself as Yahweh God, as the Lord, as the Master, as the covenant-keeping God of heaven, as the eternally existent, the ultimately existent one, the one from whom everybody in the world derives their existence, the one whose existence has never been compromised and can never be compromised. He is the great I Am. Not the great I was, and not the great I will be, but the great I am. This is the God with whom Pharaoh has to do. And this is the God who has revealed himself to Moses in this passage. So he's effectively re repeating this message uh, that he has given to Moses in the, mess in the mountain. And he brings this now to the leaders of Israel and to Pharaoh as well. Now I have six points in relation to how God reveals himself to us in this passage. And again, so important for us brothers and sisters... To, to know the God with whom we have to do. Before we get on to anything else, this is God. This is our God. We need to know who it is that speaks to us. We need to know who, the, who is, it is who saves us. And we need to know the one to whom we are praying. God is, number one, very insistent and emphatic and clear as to whom he is, who he is. Extremely insistent. So God is insistent. He is effectively grabbing Moses by the beard, looking him in the eye, and he says to Moses, listen to me, this is who I am. You need to know, Moses, who I am. I am Yahweh God. And he repeats it four, five, six times in the passage. He addresses the absurdity of Pharaoh's pride. Truly, Pharaoh's bold-faced resistance to God is the very height of insanity. But that's true, of course, of anybody that opposes God or refuses to receive his word. It's as if he is saying uh, to Pharaoh, there is no mistaking, there will be no mistaking who I am. When you see the Egyptian empire crushed like a bug in the rug, this is me. I did it. I will crush the enemy. You will know that I did it and you will know that I delivered my people. This is my plan. This is my purpose. This is me doing it, and let me sign my name to it right now. This is who I am. So he's insistent that Pharaoh know, and Moses, and the leaders of Israel know, that he is God, and he is about to redeem his people. Verse 2 again, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, as God Almighty, but by my name, Yahweh, or Lord, I was not known to them. All right, so first, God is insistent. It's my first, first uh, division in this presentation on the nature of God or who He is as we understand more of the God with whom we have to do. God is insistent that we know who He is. Secondly, God is deeply personal. God is deeply personal. He's not merely Elohim. That's the way he presents himself initially to, to us in Genesis chapter 1. He's not merely Elohim or Allah, which is how the, the Muslims take it. 
The, the Muslim God is not a deeply personal God. He is simply God. He doesn't have a name. So our God doesn't merely reveal himself to us as El Shaddai or Elohim. He reveals himself as Yahweh. He gives us his name. He also comes to us in Jesus Christ as well. And Jesus is given a name as well. So we know that our Creator's name is Jesus. And to know His name means that He wants us to know Him for who He is. A person's name associates very closely with His personality. So He wants to come into relationship. We'll get to that a little bit more later. But He is deeply personal. And then He turns to to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. It's a very personal thing for him. He is a person, and he takes these things very personally. What are you doing with my people? Let my people go, is the message that he communicates to Pharaoh. Thirdly, God is also covenant-keeping. We referred to this in this morning's message, but what does it mean to be covenant-keeping? Well, first of all, he, he, he keeps his promises, and his covenant is really a collection of his promises that we found we find in Scripture. Somebody asked me after the message this morning, so what exactly is the covenant? I lifted the Bible in uh, this morning's message, and uh, this is really what it is. It's, it's, it's really the written Word of God that is communicated to us in the Old and the New Covenants. So we often refer to these as the Testaments, right? The Old and the New Testaments. Well, effectively, these are the Old and New Covenants. Uh, they are God has testified to us in His covenants, in the Old and the New Covenant, uh, His promises to us. It begins with His promise in Genesis 3 and verse 15, then goes on to His promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then to Moses and David. All of these promises wrapped up in the covenant of grace. And then it comes into full bloom in the New Covenant, but effectively the same covenant, but uh, revealed in more clarity as we move uh, from Genesis 3 on into Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, David, and then to the New Covenant. God has promised to His people here. He's covenanted to His people. He would give them their own land. Now, why is it important that He keeps this covenant? Well, that He made the covenant with His people. He promised this to Abraham and to his seed. And these are Abraham's seed. And now we have slaves. And what is the problem with slaves? Slaves don't own the land. That's the problem. You see, nomads as well, strangers, nomads traveling through land. They don't own the land. So you have nomads and you have slaves. The children of Israel know what it is to be nomads and they know what it is to be slaves. But neither of them would own the land. Well, the promise has been given to the people that, he, that they would own the land. And so God promises here in verses 4 and 5 that he will continue uh, to establish his covenant. And to be sure that they receive the land. Listen to verses 4 and 5. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I have also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. So now he will have to free these people from slavery and take the land away from the Canaanites in order that the Israelites might have the ownership of the land. There is here also a concern, you notice that, for the groaning of these enslaved peoples. 
There are plenty of enslaved people around the world at this time, though. You need to know that slavery was so common. Anywhere between 30 and 50 percent of the, the world population was probably enslaved at this time. The Chinese enslaved people, the Aztecs enslaved people, the people groups all over the world have enslaved people uh, from day one. So this is not unusual at all. So I'm sure there were enslaved people that needed to be uh, redeemed uh, since the beginning of the world or since the uh, fall of Adam into sin. But here, God has come to these people because he's made a covenant with their fathers. He promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he would give them their land, and God always keeps his promises. And I want to refer you at once more to Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 to 19. This here is an encouragement to God's people who, who are not turning away, but are leaning in faith to read the scriptures and believe the promises of God. And so here is contrasting those uh, to those that have refused the promises of God to those who are continuing to believe the promises of God. And that's what he's contrasting here in Hebrews chapter 6. We didn't read the whole chapter. But when you come to 13, he's speaking to those who believe the promises of God. And he's outlining why we should believe the promises of God. Why God is the most believable, most trustworthy of anybody who has ever made promises in the history of the world. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 13, one more time. For when God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless you, and multiplying I will multiply you. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. See, Moses did, or Abraham did not see the promise fulfilled right there before him. He'd gone on for, what, 20, 25, 30 years without having a son. He turned to his friends and say, uh, Can't you see it, guys? We're going to have a, a people that's as many as the stars of the sky, as many as the sand on the seashore. This is going to be huge. And, and his friends would turn to him and say, uh, Abraham, don't even have one yet. We're not there yet. And yet Abraham was sure of the promises of God. He was uh, so sure of it. He patiently endured. He obtained the promise for men indeed, swear by the greater, it says, and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by these two immutable things, so what were the two immutable things? Why should we believe God? Two things. One, the immutability of his decree or promise or purpose, and the confirmation of the promise with an oath. So those are the two immutable things by which we can count on, on, on God's coming through on his promises. So on the basis of these things, it's impossible for God to lie. Now we might have strong consolation. We've fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope that is set before us, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul. So once more, why do we believe the promises of God? Why did Abraham believe the promises of God. Number one, uh, his counsel is immutable, his purposes, what he's decided to do uh, cannot change. If God has set out that this is the thing he's going to do, his counsels cannot fail. He absolutely follows through on his promises because he has purpose to do so. So first, the reason we believe his promises is because God cannot possibly not follow through on the purposes he set out to accomplish. That's number one. And then number two, the second reason we must believe God is because it's impossible for God to lie. He swore an oath by himself upon his own name. He's put his own reputation upon it. He couldn't swear by anybody else, so he swore by himself. So again, these are the reasons why we believe the promises of God. God always keeps his promises. 
So again, the question is, will Abraham's seed get the land? Absolutely, because he's promised it. And it is for Moses to believe it as he gives this to him. So God keeps his promises. God's a covenant keeper, absolutely. And then, then fourthly, the fourth thing we learn about God in this passage, who are we talking to? Who is Yahweh God? Who is this God that says, let my people go? We're answering that question right now. Here's the fourth point. God is redemptive. God is redemptive, redeems the slaves. He rescues people from bondage. He specializes in this. It's on his business card. This is what he does. Verse 6, therefore say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. Okay, what is it for Yahweh to be Yahweh? I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. See, that's very encouraging, brothers and sisters. As we're under the burdens, as we feel our burdens, as we feel some need for redemption in our lives, God says, I will redeem you from under the burden. I will rescue you from your bondage. I will redeem you from, with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Which means his redemption will be thorough. His redemption will be most spectacular. He will approach the most impossible situation and make it possible. He will bring it about by his outstretched arm. What does that mean? A magnificent display of his powerful sovereignty. He will bring it about by great judgments. In fact, the devil will pay and will pay dearly. Pharaoh will pay and will pay dearly. God will bring out his people with great judgments. The head of the serpent will be crushed. The redemption will be violent, intense, decisive. The enemy will lose in the most spectacular way. And he will receive all of the glory for it. Fifthly, verses 7 through 8, here we find that God is relational. God is relational. I will keep my covenant I will redeem you. And then he says, in verses 7 and 8, I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. And then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you as a heritage. One more time, I am the Lord. So you, you get the idea. God keeps emphasizing his name, his reputation, who he is. And the certainty that he will bring all of this about. So a very important part of the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant and the New, the new Covenant as well, really the covenant of grace, is that we will be the people of God and he will be our God. He will be our Lord. He will be our master forever and ever. And this is fulfilled in, uh, in Revelation 21 as well, where we again, are the people of God, and He is our God. We are His people, and forever and ever. Amen. So that is the covenant. It goes all the way back to Abraham, repeated again with Moses, repeated again with David, and on into the new covenant as well. Uh, God intends for us to be His people. He wants to be in relationship with us through Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. And then finally, here's the final point, is that God is a sovereign commander. And I take this from the last verses of this passage, even as uh, Moses comes back to God in verse 12 when he says, The children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I'm an uncircumcised list. What does the Lord say? Comes to Moses and Aaron again. Gives them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh king of Egypt to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So this I take to be God as the commander. He commands Pharaoh. 
he commands his people to this, and he does not ease off on his command. There's no backing away. God doesn't come back and say, well, since everybody's a little hesitant, resistant, then okay, well, maybe we're not going to do this right now. There's no sense of this whatsoever. It's rather this is what's going to happen. One way or another, God's will is going to be done. He will have it done by the free will of obedient men like Moses or Aaron, or he will have it done by force upon men like Pharaoh with the destruction of the land of Egypt and uh, the killing of the firstborn and then the wiping out of the entire army of, uh, of Egypt. So one way or another, God commands this to be done. It will be done. He sends Moses and Aaron back in to give the message to Pharaoh, get out of my way, let my people go. Sadly, the children of Israel did not believe. And it says here uh, in verse 9, Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. Sadly, they did not believe God. They were in so much pain. They were in so much trouble. They didn't think God could deliver them. And I think sometimes, brothers and sisters, we are in such severe trials, it's so hard for us to look up and cry out to God for His deliverance. Sometimes we are so distracted by our pain, by our emotional agony or whatever it is, we're so busy trying to cope, so busy trying to figure out how we're going to cope by our own methods, our own strength and ability, that we don't take the time to think about God and to hear this message from God, to even allow Himself to introduce Himself to us as the Savior and the Redeemer, as He does here in chapter 6. So busy trying to cope on their own that they have no time to think about God, to hear His Word, to consider Him, and to cry out to Him. So what is the answer to this question do you know who I am? God is asking all of us that question tonight. Do you know who you are praying to? Do you know whose word you're hearing tonight? Do you know who I am? That's the question God is posing to all of us. And brothers and sisters, the application to me is very simple. Meditate on God. We went through that series, Behold Your God. It was such a powerful series to us because we focused in upon the nature of God, the attributes of God, how God reveals himself to us in so many contexts. And it was a beautiful time because we can meditate on God himself. We need to block everything else out of our minds and focus, I believe, on God himself. So let's answer the question, do you know who I am? The answer to the question is you should know who I am. You should be very, very aware of who I am. This is the answer. I am God. I am the Lord. I am that I am. I am ultimate existence, essential beingness that can never be compromised. I am sovereign. I am over all. I am a covenant keeper. I keep my promises. I am redemptive. I redeem my people who cry out to me for redemption. And I will have my way in the armies of heaven and the armies of Pharaoh, and nobody can stay my hand or ask me, what are you doing? This is the God with whom we have to do. Hallelujah. 
Amen. May you be encouraged by this tonight and spend more time meditating upon the God with whom we all have to do. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we would have more knowledge of you. We would know you more. For if those who know their God would do exploits, those who know you, Father, will be those who believe in you and those who act upon that faith. Father, increase our knowledge of you. Help us to know our God. Behold you. Behold our God in your works, in your nature, your attributes, every one of your attributes. Father, our minds, oh, that they be consumed with knowledge of you, love for you, and worship. Father, oh, we pray you would rescue us from our condition of sin. Please, Father, help us to know you better as the covenant-keeping God who redeems his people from all of their sin and all of the consequences of it as well. Father, bring this knowledge to us by your Spirit. Open our eyes to see you, to know you, and to walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.